Thanks for listening to the Redemption Hill podcast. As a community, we are learning the way of Jesus and serving our city. Redemption Hill is kind of different. We are a collective of micro churches that gather together on Sundays to grow and connect and worship. So don't wait anymore. Join us Sundays at Boise Friends Church in the gym at 10.30 a.m. and get connected to the community you need in this season of your life. All the details you need are at redemptionboise.org. Up next is the training and teaching time from this week's gathering. Stay tuned after the sermon for more info on how to get connected. So we have been in the middle, this is, this is the very last sermon of our sermon series, Robes, Candles, Smells, and Bells, How God is Making for Himself. Let's see, How God Gave the World His Kingdom with New Priests, New Temples, and a Radical New Approach to Worship. I, I, never, I never remember the subtitle. I got the, I got the four and then I, I gave up. Um, but it's been, it's been a rich time of discerning what it means for us to be a royal priesthood, what it means for us to be this, this holy nation God set apart for his purposes and how to participate in it. And we've, we've touched on a lot of different aspects, and today is the last week, and we're going to be talking about both the first and the last of the priests that God gave to his people. Now, does anybody remember the very first time that the word priest was used in the Bible? We talked about it the very first week. Does anybody remember? What was that going to? <laughs> I, I know what you meant. Melchizedek. In, yeah, Melchizedek meets up with Abraham in Genesis chapter 11. That's the first time we hear the word priest. This idea that there's somebody who's connected with God and plays a role in mediating between God and man. And Melchizedek was the king of Salem. Melchizedek means king of righteousness, and Salem is the city of peace. And so the picture is that this king priest, Melchizedek, is the one who adjudicates God's righteousness and justice and shalom in the world. That's the picture God wants us to have of a priest. Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, or the king of justice, Sadiq is the word in Hebrew, and what it means is to set things right. That's what Melchizedek does, is he sets things right. And so him proclaiming a blessing upon Abraham was him saying that through Abraham, God will bring his justice. And then his name as the king of Salem, what would become Jerusalem, is his role as the king of Shalom, the one who will bring about the reign of God that will be filled with the justice and righteousness that God has proposed and has planned and has been working towards in all of history. And Melchizedek is this funny, this funny character in the story because we only see him this one little small couple of verses where Abraham shows up in Jerusalem after this long journey and is blessed by Melchizedek, and then it's gone. But throughout history, in Psalms, and then when we see Jesus come, we see him called the, a, pre, a king priest in the order of Melchizedek in Hebrews 7, we see that there's this thread of the idea of this king priest throughout all of history. And I, we want to end there today. So there's, 
There's three different orders of priests that we see throughout the Bible. The first is um, we see Melchizedek, who is this, the earliest and the last, who was probably what we understand to be a descendant of Shem, one of Noah's sons. That's why he knew how to be one of God's mediators. One of his priests was because he had seen Noah after the flood do the very first thing God tells him to do, which was to sacrifice some animals that God had set aside in the ark for that particular purpose. Those that were the clean animals would be set aside with more than two, right? Because if you kill one of the two, you're out of luck. You really, you really got to watch the numbers when they get that low. Um, but there was seven of the clean animals each that were set aside for a particular purpose, which was to anoint the world with the blood of innocent animals so that it would be purified of sin. So Noah was this restart. And Shem then learned how to be one of these priests that mediates the presence and the righteousness of God. And then we think that Melchizedek was one of his descendants. And then we also have the Levites who were established in the Exodus as they were coming off of Mount Sinai. God gave them this list of here's what it means to be in a relationship with me. We're going to set aside the Levites as a particular people who come from the line of Moses and Aaron to be the people who are set apart for this particular purpose, to be my priests in Israel. They will not have um, a, um, a part of the land of Israel that God had set aside. They, their whole, God will provide for them through his people by giving them the temple as their home, as the place that they will dwell with God. And then lastly, we see um, after the Levites and what happens in exile when they come back, a professional class of priests kind of enters the picture. And this is, this is when you know things have gone downhill. Anytime something gets professionalized, that's the beginning of the end. And with the priests, they become professionalized. They become the Sanhedrin, and they take the power of the temple and its place in the life of Israel and use it to gain power and influence and money, corrupting themselves and corrupting the temple itself, which is why God destroys the temple and installs Jesus as his forever temple, the presence that would reign in earth. Now, we're going to go to Hebrews chapter 7. And Hebrews 7 is a cool, long passage, but just bear with me because I think that there's, this is the first time we really get what's going on in the Melchizedek story. Hebrews chapter 7, I'm in the New Living Translation. I think we have it. There we go. Uh, this Melchizedek was king of the city of Salem and also a priest of God Most High. When Abraham was returning home after winning a great battle against the kings, Melchizedek met him and he blessed him. And then Abraham took a tenth of all that he had captured in battle and gave it to Melchizedek. The name Melchizedek means king of justice and king of Salem means king of peace. There is no record of his father or mother or any of his ancestors, no beginning or end to his life. He remains a priest forever, resembling the Son of God. Now the writer of Hebrews is bringing forward this idea of who Melchizedek was, and he's saying Jesus was all that Melchizedek was hoped to be. Consider then how great this Melchizedek was. Even Abraham, the great patriarch of Israel, recognized this by giving him a tenth of what he had taken in battle. Now, this is really symbolically important. Abraham was a very weak tribal leader. 
He had a small clan that he had brought with him from Haran and was creating this family that then would try to find and eke out a place in the world. Now when they come to Melchizedek and after Abraham has won a battle against the, the kings in the valley, what, what he comes and does is he gives a tenth of tribute to Melchizedek, saying that Melchizedek himself is the greater king who deserves Abraham's allegiance. Now that would not be appropriate for God's people. That would fundamentally not be appropriate for God's people to pay tribute to anybody who does not belong to Yahweh, because Yahweh is their great king. And they don't need any other great king to protect them. That's why we see throughout the Old Testament, God tells them, don't enter into treaties. Don't put your faith in the horses and chariots of the Egyptians and the Romans and the Greeks. Put your faith in me. But Melchizedek is this representative of God's presence. All right. Melchizedek placed a blessing upon Abraham, the one who had already received the promises of God. And without question, the person who has the power to give a blessing is greater than the one who is blessed. Now, this is just the, the flow of how tribute works. The greater king blesses the lower king once the lower king has committed to them tribute to show fealty or loyalty to them. And so he's just saying, listen, Melchizedek was greater than Abraham, which is... The, the only place in all of Hebrew Scripture you're going to see somebody make the claim that someone is greater than Abraham, that someone is greater than the father of God's people that he had set aside for him. The, the priests, and this is where the, the cool turn happens, the priests who collect tithes are men who die. So Melchizedek is greater than they are because we are told that he lives on. In addition, we might even say that these Levites, the one who collect the tithe, they paid a tithe to Melchizedek when their ancestor Abraham paid a tithe to him. For although Levi wasn't born yet, the seed from which he came was in Abraham's body when Melchizedek collected the tithe from him. <laughs> I just love that writer of Hebrews is like, well, let me give you a little picture of how this works. He probably had, you know, like, that's a funny, funny way for that to happen. But what, what he's saying is there's a greater priest. The priesthood of the Levites, even the high priest of the Levites, still pays tribute himself to Melchizedek, the great king priest. So if the priesthood of Levi, on which the law was based, could have achieved the perfection that God intended, why did God need to establish a different priesthood with a priest in the order of Melchizedek instead of the order of Levi and Aaron? This is what it's all about. The blood of goats and rams, sheep and bulls, would never be able to prepare the people of Israel to be God's people. It was a sign and a symbol of what would come. But God set aside for himself a different kind of priesthood, the priesthood of Melchizedek from which Christ himself would arise. And if the priesthood is changed, the law must also be changed to permit it. For the priest we are talking about belongs to a different tribe whose members have never served as, at the altar as priests. What I mean is our Lord came from the tribe of Judah, and Moses never mentioned priests coming from that tribe. This change has been made very clear since a different priest who is like Melchizedek has appeared. 
Jesus became a priest not by meeting the physical requirement of belonging to the tribe of Levi, but by the power of a life that cannot be destroyed. And the psalmist pointed this out when he prophesied in Psalm 110, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Yes, that old requirement about the priesthood was set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law never made anything perfect. But now we have confidence in a better hope through which we draw near to God. This new system was established with a solemn oath. Aaron's descendants became priests without such an oath. It was just because they were born into it. But there was an oath regarding Jesus. For God said to him, the Lord has taken an oath and will not break his vow. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus is the one who guarantees this better covenant with God. Now, what I think is happening here is that the writer of Hebrews is pointing back to Genesis chapter 15 and this oath that God makes as the greater king with Abraham. And God says he himself will be the greater king who takes on the punishment for us breaking the covenant. And how God is this oath maker whose covenant cannot be broken. And Jesus is the sign and the seal of that covenant coming to fruition by him dying and rising again and creating this way for us. And we talked about this, that Jesus is a different kind of priest because he's not out there butchering lambs and bulls. Instead, he's the kind of priest who dies himself so that people will be set free from their sin. That's the different kind of priest that the Melchizedek priest is. He's a Melchizedek priest forever because when he died, all sin died on him. And when he rose again, all creation was renewed with his, with his bodily resurrection. There were many priests under that old system. For death prevented them from remaining in office. But because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood lasts forever. Therefore, he is able once and forever to save those who came to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. He is the kind of high priest that we need because he is himself holy and blameless, unstained by sin. He's been set apart from sinners, been made and given the greatest, highest place of honor in heaven. Unlike those other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices every day. They did this for their own sins first and then for the sins of the people. But Jesus did this once and for all when he offered himself as the sacrifice for the people's sins. The law appointed high priests who were limited by human weakness. But after the law was given, <clears throat> God appointed his son with an oath. And his son has been made the perfect high priest forever. Now you've got to imagine for Jewish believers in the first century... They still had this emotional and relational tie to the temple that was very deep. They couldn't just pretend like the temple didn't matter anymore. Even with the curtain torn, and even knowing now what we know is that within 15 or 20 years, the temple itself will be destroyed, never to be rebuilt. They had this sense that the temple was this vital part of their existence. And that now they'd been cut off from the temple. So when you joined in with the family of Jesus, the Jewish leader said, if you're a follower of the way, you have no place in the temple. They were treated like Gentiles. 
they were kept in the outer courts, or they were chased down by the Jewish authorities. And so they still have this need to be in the temple, but they themselves can't belong in the temple. Can you imagine how, like, if you knew that you needed God, but you weren't allowed to be a part of his family, how you'd feel? And so the writer of Hebrews is trying to give the sense that what you don't understand is that the temple was always temporary. The temple was this temporal thing that God had set aside to help people point them to God and to give them an intermediate way of God residing among his people. But that when Jesus came, it was the fulfillment of all that they were hoping for. And that he's the kind of priest, not like the priests who are full of sin, not like the priests who die themselves every every so often, not like the priests who, um, who are just like them. He's a different kind of priest. And even though the law appointed high priests who are limited with their human weakness, but after the law, God appointed his son with an oath. And his son is this perfect high priest forever. We, as a royal priesthood, are called to be different kind of priests in the way of Jesus. We are not Melchizedek priests. We are not the great one high priest that Jesus represents before the Father. Jesus' place at the right hand of the Father, pleading for people as our mediator, will never go away. He has that role alone. But when we, as his people, learn the way of Jesus, we participate alongside of him in going before the Father and saying, let me die instead of my neighbor. Let me sacrifice my will instead of destroying the world. Lord God, let me be a different kind of priest who dies for the sake of others rather than demanding that the blood of goats and bulls will die for me. We enter into this different kind of priesthood where we, like Jesus, by his blood, become the sort of set-apart holy people. His blood on the cross was enough for us so that now we can boldly enter before the throne of grace as priests. It's not for ourselves. It's as mediators between God and humanity. We now, like Jesus, the great Melchizedek priest, we transcend death. Our priesthood will not end. In this life and the next, we will have the role of worshiping God, of standing before him in his presence, of doing the work of setting the stage for worship for others, for mediating between God and men with our prayers and with our voice. We will be these kind of transcendent creatures who no longer are threatened by death, but we live in the reality of the resurrection. And this is the piece I want to camp on today. When Melchizedek blesses Abraham, this is what it means to be a Melchizedek priest. We joined in as a part of this royal priesthood. Now that's a funny term. It's only ever used about the church. In all of human history, royal priesthood has only ever been used to describe who we are. 
And it has everything to do with what Melchizedek was. He was a king who was a priest. And we are not kings who are priests, we are princes and princesses. We have joined in with the royal family of God. And as a part of the royal family of God, we become the conduit of the blessing of the great high king over all people. We have this blessing, authority, and power that flows through us from the high king of heaven to all of creation. It's, it's just, I, I don't know how to just, like this is so powerful and so important. I'm trying to, trying to figure out how to get it into you. Okay, you are endowed with all the power of heaven. You are the conduit of God's presence his power, his blessing, and his authority. What Jesus says about the church before he leaves is he says to Peter, whatever you bind, I will bind, and whatever you loose, I will loose. That has everything to do with curses and blessings. So we literally, as his people, become the ones who participate in bringing about justice and bringing about righteousness in the world. We are a royal priesthood. And that means that just like Pentecost, we're, we're, we're celebrating today and yesterday, Pentecost, which is the temple has, the veil has been torn, access has been given to the Father, and the Holy Spirit has rushed out like a flood into creation so that anyone who calls on the name of Jesus, their hearts will be filled with his immediate presence by the Spirit. It means that we can be transformed by his power, not by our own. It means that we can participate in transformation for others. It means that we have authority over powers of darkness in this world. It means that our identity has been shaped and completely shifted. In 1 Peter, this is the verse we've talked about this whole this whole series, but you are not like that, for you are a chosen people. You are a, are a royal priest, a holy nation, God's very own possession. And as a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness and into his wonderful light. Now, authority is a strange word. We, it's, it's a bad word in a lot of circles. Um, it has become symbolic of evil authority, like evil power in this world, the idea of authority. Like even in church, I, I bristle at the idea of authority because it's somehow in these small little family units, it, authority gets abused more than anything, and it, it shouldn't. That's not the kind of authority we're talking about. Authority is not about the power to coerce through punishment. Authority is about who it's been given from. Okay? So authority is not about what I can do. Authority is about who I come from. And I am a part of the royal family of the one true God. And he's given me this new identity as a royal priesthood. He's given me this new identity as a part of his family. That he has given me the authority by my, by my position in his family. Okay? So you don't get authority because you're righteous and you don't get authority because you're strong. And in our world, you get authority because you take it. 
That's the way authority works in this world, is that you're strong enough to coerce somebody else to give you a position so that you can get what you want. But in God's kingdom, authority is bestowed on us by the position that we have and what it means to be a part of this Melchizedek priesthood is that we are a royal priesthood given authority by God. And so when we live out this identity, we get boldness from our access to God. Because we belong to his family, we don't have to worry if we're overstepping our bounds. You, each of you, are a priest. You've been sent by the high priest with a particular message and a particular purpose that God wants to come to life in you. You get boldness because uh, you're close to the Father. When you're close to somebody, I don't know, like I'm, I'm in meetings a lot where we're trying to figure out how to get something done, and you look around the table and you realize like that person is like, really close friends with that person and that you want to leverage their access to that person to get what you want. You know what I'm talking about? I don't know. Like, we, I do a lot of planning, so we're always trying to figure out how to get people to join in with something, and we're like, well, who's close to them that could maybe, you know, pull some strings? Well, what happens in the kingdom of God is we are close to the Father. We have his presence living inside of us, and so we have access to the authority that he's entrusted to us. But it's not for us. The access we have to the Father, the authority we have from the Father is for the people around us. And here's what I mean. Authority from the Father is meant for everyday kind of life. It's not meant for special times. It's not meant for special things. The authority that we're talking about is when evil lurks in the world around us, we can call it to heal. We can, we can tell it it has no place in our lives because we have the authority from Father to say, this is the king's home, my life, my home, my church. This is, this is God's land. He, the evil has no place in God's land, and I, I've been given authority as his priest to purify his land of the enemy that lurks and looks to steal, kill, and destroy. And so you, as God's people, have the power to say evil has no place here. That's why we pray against powers of darkness, is because they are under our rule and our reign. In this space, in the places we set aside for God's presence to reign, evil has no place. And so if you're in need of healing and, and freedom from darkness, you better go to the one who has the authority to deal with it, and that's you. That's why we gather hands and lay hands on people, and, and we say, God, reign here. Take away the power of darkness. You have authority over sin. Sin no longer has authority over you. You have authority over sin. When you were in the world, when you were in darkness, sin had authority over you. It could get you to do what it wanted because you were under the rule and reign of this world. But once you entered into the kingdom, sin no longer has rule and reign unless you give it a foothold in your life. And so now we have the authority as the Melchizedek priests 
to call down and say, this is God's space and sin has no power here. We have the kind of authority that can say no to the addictions that rage in our bodies, the desires for pleasure that ruin us. We have power over temptation to say that there is now no temptation that will overcome us because we are in God's kingdom. We have the kind of authority to bring restoration. Just like Jesus' death brought restoration to humanity, we can bring in our presence and in our work restoration to a broken and dark world. And that's the way that God has set kings particularly aside, rulers, is they're the ones who are supposed to look around and say, there's broken things, I'm responsible as a representative of this government to make it good. That's, the, that's our, our leader's jobs. And now you have been given that authority. So everywhere you go and you look around and you see injustice, Everywhere you go, you see brokenness. Everywhere you go where you see addiction and you see temptation and you see sin and evil reigning, you have authority as a royal priesthood to take back that space for God's presence to reign again. Can I get an amen? (laughs) This is good news. You have the authority to take back space in your life for God's rule and reign to come back, to transform the broken, dark places that are binding you up. God's kingdom has authority to give you the space to experience the sort of hope that we've been just dying for. When each night uh, when I pray with my kids, I tell them who they are. I don't know if you do this, but I, I'll, I'll pray for each of my kids, and then before they go to bed, I'll go over to Ike's bed, and I'll lay my hand on him. I'll tell him, Ike, you are a beautiful child. You are going to become a great man who loves God and serves others. I pray over him, his identity, so that he understands who he is. And by the authority of God, I see it coming to life in him. This is the kind of authority that God has given his people. Um, I, have, I have some friends who, uh, they're not yet followers of Jesus, but they, they like the way of Jesus. People who like, they, they're drawn to it, these people of peace. And uh, one of them's named Chris, and we work together. And I got to speak over him and tell him that he is a good man that he cares about the right things. I think he's starting to be a follower of Jesus. I think he's figuring out some of that stuff. But I got to speak over him and tell him who he really is, the sort of identity God wants for him to grab hold of. I get to be the bearer of that identity by taking the authority of God and speaking it over him. Not because I'm his boss. I'm not his boss. We're coworkers. But I got to speak that into him. God gives us the kind of authority in our everyday work to bring the healing presence of God into space. Um, I don't know if you've ever done this, but I've I've got, I have a friend who had just gone through like a a knee tear, 
And I was like, listen, I don't even know if you like believe in God or prayer, but like I've just seen some incredible things happen when people pray for God to bring healing. Could I lay my hand on your knee and pray for you? And she just started to go, uh, I, oh, okay. Like she was just like, I'll take whatever I can get, man. <laughs> like we'll, we'll do this thing. Um, but that's the sort of authority God gives us to enter in and bring healing by our presence, by our hands touching and, and by them and their faith being, being built up by our authority. We have the kind of authority in this world to live with moral clarity. The world around us is always looking for ways to say that evil is good and to say that good is evil because they're trying to justify the brokenness in this world and make sense of it. But we have the authority to call out with moral clarity, this is right and this is wrong, because God himself has shown that death and destruction is bad, and his way brings life. And it's not popular, and it can, it can really ruffle some feathers and cause people to alienate you, but we have the kind of authority of God's people to speak prophetically as both priests, prophets, and kings to say, this is not good. And we have to be the kind of people who say those things. Not because we want to gain power or authority in the world, not because we're afraid of what's going to happen, but because we're the only ones who have the access to the moral clarity that comes from God's voice, shaping us as his people. And now we're going to go to the good part. You ready? Revelation chapter 1, verse 12. We see at the very end what this Melchizedek thing comes, comes to. When I turned, this is John saying, when I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven gold lampstands and standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool as white as snow. So like when people say that God is this like beaming light with white robes and white hair, this is what they're talking about. That's where they got this from, okay? And his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were polished bronze, re refined in a furnace, and his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand, and a two-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face like the sun in all of its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead, but he laid his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and the grave. This is the king of all creation himself laying his hand on John and saying, Don't be afraid. I have all the power over death and Hades. I'm not the one to be afraid of. And then we see, this, this, is a, this is a callback to Melchizedek, the one who won't die, that priest that lasts forever, the one whose power and authority is not temporal, but it's eternal. He's the king priest. And then we see the Son of Man in, in Revelation 5. He's, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, and he's bringing justice through his suffering and his death and his resurrection and his rule. And then it says this in Revelation 5. Then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. This is the Son of Man. There was writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll. It was sealed with seven seals, and I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, 
Who is worthy to break the seals of the scroll and open it? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. And then I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and to read it. And the scroll is, is this image of the kingdom coming to life by the good news unveiled. That's the picture that they're trying to get here, okay? And then I saw the lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered. But it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes. It just got crazier. Okay, which represent the sevenfold spirit of God that sent out in every part of the earth. He stepped forward and he took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. And when he took the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they held gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song with these words, You are worthy to take the scroll, to break its seals and open it, for you were slaughtered, and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God. This is the moment when we see at Pentecost. I, I really believe that this picture is the moment that's happening at Pentecost. The lamb who has been slain comes and takes hold of the seal announcing the kingdom of God coming in power. And he's saying, I'm the one who can open that. And when he opens it, he says, from every tribe and nation and people, you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God, and they will reign on earth. And then I looked. And again, I heard the voices of thousands and millions of angels around the throne and the living beings and the elders, and they sang in a mighty chorus, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches. Okay? Like, we, we hear these words and it just sounds like a song, but what they're saying is that the Lamb is the one who's worthy of all authority because of his death, because of his resurrection. To receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, and they sang, blessing and honor and glory and power only belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beings said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and they worshiped the Lamb. This is our royal priesthood. We have been anointed by the King of Kings, the only one who was worthy to announce and bring about the kingdom of God breaking into this world. And so we are now a family of the King, the royal priesthood, princes and princesses who are bringing about the new creation and the new priesthood that we were meant to be. And I hope after five weeks that we're starting to grab hold of this new identity that we have you, if you have put your faith in Christ, if you have committed to learning the way of Jesus, if you have made him your Lord and your King, you are a priest, mediating between God and men, his presence, his power, his authority, and his righteousness in the world. You have been called and equipped, empowered and prepared by his Spirit's presence to do his things. You and me. This is our work. 
part of me feels like this is finally what we got to after five and a half years of being Redemption Hill. We're finally grabbing hold of who we truly are. We talked a little bit about how the, the Reformation talked a good game 500 years ago about, go about the priesthood of all believers, and then they installed priests to do this stuff for everybody. Like they, they're like, hey, we want you all to be priests, and what that means is... Uh, we're going to do everything up here, and you're going to sit there and listen, okay? Like, that's, that's what the Reformation did. And it's, they, just, they just didn't go far enough. What we were all meant to be was a royal priesthood, every single one of us being God's people in the world. And here's what Jesus says about it. He doesn't say it's impossible. He doesn't say that you can't do it. What he says is his yoke is easy, and his burden is light, and that his Holy Spirit's going to do the heavy lifting. So are you ready to grab hold of this new identity? Go and be the reconciling force that we need in this world, pursuing justice, mercy, kindness, truth, restoration, healing, and restoration. This is who we are as God's people. And so today, as you come forward, and as I'm going to invite the band to come up, and we're going to finish up our morning, but we have the table prepared up here, and we kind of talk through different aspects of what communion means each week to, to, give, to give some clarity about why we do it. But joining in with communion is saying, I'm with God, and I'm taking hold of my identity as a part of his work. My identity is a priest. That's who I am. That's what I do. I mediate between God and humanity, both directions, by giving away his blessing and his authority to see his kingdom come in power now. It's not just magical thinking. It's just, it's real. This is now, and the table itself is the easy example of it. So let me take the elements. And actually what we're going to do today is I'm going to invite you to come grab the elements and you're going to go back to your seat. And in between the next two songs, we're going to take them together as one body. Okay, we don't, we don't always do that. We kind of do an individual thing. But I want you to come forward, grab these, because this is Christ's blood that was shed for us on the cross. And this is his body that was broken for us so that he could stand before the Father of all creation and be the only one who is worthy to bring forth the kingdom and all of its power. Lord God, let communion be that space for us today. All right, so during this next song, come forward, receive communion, take it back to your seat, and in between, we're going to take it all together, okay? Thanks for listening to our weekly podcast. Make sure to subscribe to get them in your podcast feed. You can find ways to connect with Redemption Hill at redemptionboise.org connection. Fill out the form for a free gift from us. We care about you and want to help you find your way back to God. Follow at Redemption Boise on Instagram for regular encouragement.